Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where WWL anchor Tan Throng is leaving the studio to launch a new true crime podcast with his wife, Anna Christie. The pilot of New Orleans Unsolved will air on February 27th, 2020, with an examination of the death of Edward Wells, whose body was found in the Mississippi River in 1982. I'm joined by Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where the 39th Infantry Brigade, Brigade Combat Team, representing the state of Arkansas, snipers from Canada, Poland, Denmark, and the Netherlands, and 19 U.S. National Guard units are competing in the Winston P. Wilson Sniper Championship in the River Valley at Fort Chaffee. The results, which will be announced on Wednesday, will determine which teams head to Georgia for the International Sniper Championship. Thank you for joining us for Episode 50, State of Louisiana versus Antoinette Renee Frank and Rogers Joseph Lacaz. Tonight, we'll talk about the March 4th, 1995 murders of Officer Ronald Austin Williams II, 21-year-old Havu, and 17-year-old Kwong Vu during a robbery of the Vu family restaurant, Kim An. Former police officer Antoinette Frank and her 18-year-old boyfriend, Rogers Lacoste, were arrested and charged with the murders after they were identified by survivors Chow and Kwok Vu. We'll talk about Officer Williams and the Vu family, the circumstances that brought Antoinette Frank into their lives, and the events of March 4th, 1995. Then we'll talk about the trials, direct appeals, and post-conviction claims raised by Frank and Lacaz, including the reversal and reinstatement of Lacaz's conviction and his resentencing to life in prison in 2019. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. 
And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. I'm excited about Tom Trong's new uh, podcast. I'm sorry I butchered his name. Um, oh, it's going to be a podcast. It's a podcast. Yeah, New Orleans Unsolved. He's an oh, anchor at WWL, uh, one of our news stations. Okay. A very handsome guy with a great, he's got a great, great voice. He's very handsome, so he's got a face for television, too. But he's not like me where, you know, he's got a a face for radio. (laughs) Well, Lisa, come on now. We know that ain't true. (laughs) So, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited, you know, excited about that. uh, I'll reach out to him on Twitter and see if uh, he wants to come on to talk about the Wells case. Absolutely. See what kind. Of, also, see what platforms they're going to be on, because I may have to subscribe. Great, I will. I'll see where. Uh, they have a web page. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll send you a link later tonight uh, from Twitter, and um, I think it. You know, they're they're probably more likely than not. They're probably going to be funded by somebody. Oh yeah, I'm sure to do this. <laughs> oh yeah, and so, um, I, I but yeah, I'll find out what platform it's going to be and where we can listen. And it sounds it sounds incredibly interesting. Oh yes, absolutely. It's always cool to get some. Uh, I always like kind of listening to some things like that, especially like the news reporters that covered the story, what they remember from things, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, yeah. Cool to listen to that. Yep. So it's uh, it sounds like it's going to be a good one, and it's going to be uh, launching on our third anniversary date. Oh wow! Okay. Shame on them for trying to overshadow us. No, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. There's plenty of room in the pool. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I just have two little. Quick updates. Uh, Dahlia DiPolito, her writ to the U.S. Supreme Court is on the conference calendar for Friday, February 21st, 2020. And Reed's writ has also been relisted for conference on February 21st, 2020, on Friday. So we'll see what happens with, uh, yeah, February 21st, that's Friday. Okay. And so in other news, my office is closed Monday and Tuesday. Oh, look at you. Remind me again, so, what does mean? That's where the the justices who participate in the cert pool uh discuss whether or not to grant review of cases or decline review of cases. Ah, okay. Okay. And so Justice Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, and one of the other justices don't participate in the cert pool, so they probably will put in their votes. I believe there it's a vote, and you know, majority, uh, majority wins, majority to decline or majority to grant. Right. Uh, so I guess it would have to be at least five. To grant the writ, um, if if five 
deny the writ, the other four can write memorandum opinions uh, that become part of the denial of the writ and voice their reasons for granting the writ, which interestingly uh, enough, in none of Reed's prior uh, attempts to have the U.S. Supreme Court review his claims have any of the most liberal judges on the face of the planet, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Kagan, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and um, the fourth whose name escapes me at the moment. None of those four have ever written any memoranda saying they wanted to grant him a writ. There's not really any odds. I mean, you know, they, there's got to be a five vote. Reed's case has been passed. I think this is the sixth conference. Right. However, they they look at over 200 cases are listed on a conference date. Oh, okay. So it's entirely possible that they're not getting to Reed's or maybe, you know, maybe one or two haven't finished reviewing the material. Mm-hmm. And aren't ready to decide one way or the other. So, um, you know, unfortunately, no. This whether the U.S. Supreme Court takes case is not something that anybody is going to be placing bets on because well, no, you can't. Lisa, I'm asking you. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a roundabout way of me asking I, you what you think. Well, I, I think it is. You know, I think it's pretty unlikely because this deals with the claims in the eighth writ. This deals with an attempt by the Innocence Project to get an invocation of Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination used uh, to draw an adverse inference against a witness who testified at trial. Uh, which I think is an extremely dangerous precedent that the Innocence Project does not realize what kind of can of worms they might be opening. Because right. if you can draw an adverse inference against a witness not testifying at trial, who's to say that the prosecution can't urge an adverse inference against a client or a defendant not testifying at a post-conviction hearing to support his own claims of actual innocence or whatever, not necessarily at a trial for guilt or innocence, but at post-conviction proceedings. You might want to be careful about that. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely, you're playing a dangerous game at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was why I tried to ask that question of Mr. Phillips, but I think I I think I was a little uh, I I I was a little I made it a little bit more complicated than that simple thing. What would it mean if the U.S. Supreme Court said you have a witness who testifies at trial who refuses to testify and invokes at a at a post conviction hearing? You can draw an adverse inference. That they're hiding something, that they're really guilty. I mean, true. Yeah. I mean, but then again, with human nature, 
when I hear somebody pleads the fifth on something, I automatically think, well, uh, obviously there's something to that. Well, I mean, I, I find it uh, incredibly uh, hypocritical. Rodney Reed has claimed in media interviews about this relationship he had with Stacy, and he tells all these stories about how they met, et cetera, et cetera. She picked Michael Jackson's song on the jukebox, but he doesn't name the exact song. And yet he's had three. He's coming into his fourth, <clears throat> excuse me, post-conviction hearing, and he has yet to testify about this relationship with Stacy that he supposedly had. Right, but yet he wants to draw adverse. You know. Right. And for us against Fennell, who, you know, I, I think Fennell didn't want to testify at that hearing because, A, they were going to be accusing him of perjury. Mm-hmm. B, they were going to be asking him about things he did while he was a police officer in Georgetown between 9 and 8 and 11 years after Stacy was murdered. They were going to ask him about what he did when he was in Giddings. You know, they were they were going to engage in a fishing expedition. And I don't blame Jimmy Finnell one bit for saying, nope, not going to play. Absolutely. I mean, it would make I, no sense to Jimmy to play along just, with that. Just as Rodney Reed has invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege since his trial, because he didn't testify at his trial that he and Stacy were together on late Sunday night, early Monday morning, as he claims. He didn't testify about their alleged relationship. He didn't testify about any of that, and he hasn't done it at any hearings. So, yeah, Rodney's just special. <laughs> so, but we'll we'll have to see uh, see how it plays out. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's one of those things I'm just sitting here waiting for it to play out at this point. I'm just ready for it to be over one way or the other. Well, I I have a feeling that that's, um, that's not going to be a quick process. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like you said, we're yeah. going to be heading into, like, our 10th season before he even has a chance to come up again. Right. Probably, well, we'll be probably sixth or seventh season before he gets the next date, and then the last minute, there'll be new witnesses and new claims. <clears throat> and it's just a question of whether... Texas courts or the federal courts will find those claims to be sufficient to be developed. Right. So, all right, well, we're ready to get into the Kim on murders. Kim on was a family restaurant, uh, Vietnamese food, and there was a little gro- like a little grocery store attached to the restaurant, so they kind of had two businesses in one. Um, the Vu family, the father 
and I'm I'm pronouncing these as best I can. Big Nok Vu came from Vietnam with his youngest son, who I believe was Quang Vu, in around 1979. He worked and saved for 10 years to bring the rest of his family to the United States. Uh, He had served in the Vietnamese Navy for South Vietnam and was in Vietnam after Saigon fell in 1973. So he spent another six years in Vietnam after the North Vietnamese uh, took over. Yeah, I can so he wanted a better life. You know, he wanted a better life for his family. And, and in Vietnam, you know, they, they don't trust authorities. Um, <clears throat> I believe, you know, those six years, it's a communist regime that was not very tolerant. <laughs> so it was it was a tough a tough life for them. In nineteen eighty nine or around nineteen eighty nine um, his wife, Wet Win, and their daughters, Chow and Ha, and their next to youngest son, Kwok, were finally able to come over to the United States. Kwong, who was 17 at the time he died, was going to enter the seminary and become a priest. He played high school football. He worked very hard in his family's restaurant. Uh, he was a good, good, good kid uh, from you know early age when he even did, when he didn't speak English, he was at church helping the priest. He was an altar boy. Uh, he just he led an exemplary life, even for someone so young. And in fact, the night that he or the night before he died, he and his brother Kwok were out playing football behind the restaurant during a slow period. Uh, their mother, uh, Wet Win, she came over from Vietnam. They were working. They were establishing the restaurant. Uh, their daughter Chow, who was 20, probably about 20, 19 or 20 when they came over. She worked to help the family. She ran the restaurant. She was going to school, working on a business degree. Uh, Sister Ha was described as very sweet, very quiet, an ethereal girl. She also wanted to be a nun. Uh, She had been going to college. She was 21 at the time she died. But it was too expensive, and she really wanted to help the family's business become established before leaving to go into a convent and become a a novice and then take her vows. And then next to youngest son, Kwok Vu, also played high school football. He was a high school student and probably around getting ready to to graduate. Um, He also worked at the restaurant. They all worked at the restaurant. And that's one of the things about, you know, the, the, Vietnamese families that I've known throughout the years, everybody works very hard, and they all work for a common goal, 
not only within their own family, but within their their community. Uh, Vietnamese don't trust banks, so a lot of the businesses, they do everything in cash. They don't have bank accounts. They don't use checks. They pay everybody in cash. They do an all-cash business. And um, if, you know, another another family needs money to fix up the house, they'll loan the money to them to fix up the house. The community will pull their money and loan it out. And the Vus had actually gotten money to fix up the parking lot and do some repairs around the restaurant and the store. So, um, it, you know, it's a very, like I said, community-oriented, family-oriented style of life. When, because they don't trust banks and they have a lot of cash around, the businesses will often have off-duty police officers working paid details. And that was the case at Kim On Restaurant and Grocery. And the way paid details worked in NOPD during that time, it was unregulated. I think perhaps you had to let your district know that you were working paid details, but you were paid directly by whoever you were working the detail for. NOPD had nothing to do with it. And the only the only rule was your details can't interfere with your shift. Okay. Um, so the Kim on restaurant, and also with the paid details, basically a new officer coming into a into a, a district, uh, someone who had a detail at Dillard's or at a restaurant or at a grocery store at a bar room. They would bring another young officer in and give him a few shifts because at that time in NOPD, the pay was horrible. Uh, I think the starting pay was like $18,000 a year in the early 1990s when – I mean, I worked at that time as a legal assistant and a paralegal, and I was making between 20 and 25, and I was struggling. Right. You know, so 18,000, you couldn't just be a police officer. You had to do something else. You had to do a second job. And another thing with the paid details is you were paid time and a half. Oh, okay. So um, if you made $10 an hour as a cop, you would get 15 an hour on a detail. Huh. Uh, another problem with NOPD is they did not pay any overtime. They required officers to be 25 to 35 minutes early for each shift, mm-hmm. but they didn't pay you for those 25 or 35 minutes in roll call. Oh, wow. And then if you worked past the end of your shift – you didn't get paid. So, I mean, this was the early 90s. It was it was pretty bad. Um, yeah. Very difficult. And as, you know, always comes up during discussions of the case, there was corruption. There was a lot of corruption. Mm-hmm. But uh, painting the entire department with that broad brush 
is entirely ridiculous. Right. Because, you know, there were bad cops out there, and they, they pretty much stuck to themselves and did what they wanted to do. And unfortunately, the good ones couldn't do anything to stop them. Absolutely. Uh, except, you know, try and impress upon them the fact that they, you know, they were not or supposed bad. to be doing the things they were doing, and they should achieve to, you know, achieve try to be a better person. Um, but when you when you talk about good cops and NOPD, Ronald Williams, even though it was early in his career, he was looking to be a good cop. Right. He knew how to do his job. He did it well. He followed the rules. Um, you know, he wasn't out to take advantage or get something for nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was raised in New Orleans East. He had a younger brother named Sean, uh, oldest of two boys. It was a nice area at the time, but the late 70s, early to late 90s, I mean, early to late 80s, the area around in New Orleans, he started getting rougher and rougher. Um, he went to Brother Martin High School and graduated. And, you know, all of his teachers and people who taught him years before said nothing but nice things about him. He looked out for his brother. He was a good student. He, you know, looked out for the little guy because he was very, he was large. He was over six feet tall. Um, strapping, you know, handsome young man, but he looked out for the little guy and he knew right from wrong and he did, you know, always tried to do the right thing. When he was in high school, he met his neighbor, a girl by the name of Mary Burris. He was a senior, she was a freshman, and he thought at first she was too young for him. But then when she was a junior or a senior in high school, he could no longer ignore her. And then he set out to impress and win the heart of Mary Burris. And from everything I read, Mary was equally smitten with him, and they were just a great little couple. They teased each other. They had a good relationship, and it was like, you know, they knew that was the one, each of them right. at that young age. Uh, they he also had he, – he had a gift with working on cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had a Mustang that he had worked on and fixed up and souped up that he used to drive around drag racing, which is the wrong thing to have been doing, but it was yeah. out on Mishu Boulevard, you know, in a, in a pretty desolate part of New Orleans East. Um, and he probably, when he became a cop, he probably thought, God, why was I doing that? Um, they were married. And shortly after that, their oldest son, Christopher, was born. At that time, uh, you had to be 21 to join NOPD. Uh-huh. So when he turned 21 around 1990, 1991, he put in his application to join NOPD. Mm-hmm. Uh, went through the academy, was top of his class, passed everything with flying colors, 
And when he graduated, he was assigned to the 7th District. Okay. Through another officer at the 7th District, he learned and got, excuse me, paid details at the Kimon restaurant. And the Vu family, they treated the, the officers who worked those paid details, they treated them like family. They knew their birthdays. They knew who their Wives were, their children were, they bought gifts. When, you know, things were tight, they helped them out with additional money to make ends meet, never right. expecting anything in return. I mean, they were such great people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so he started working paid details at the Kim On restaurant. And in February of 1995, his second son, Patrick, was born. Mm-hmm. On February 26, 1995, and when Patrick was about nine or ten days old, that's when his father was murdered. Oh, man. So, um, now we'll go to the other side of the coin, Antoinette Frank. She was born in 1971 in Opelousas, Louisiana, which is outside of, uh, eh, around Baton Rouge, going toward Lafayette. When she was young, her family moved to New Orleans, and while she was here, she joined the NOPD Explorers Program. She wanted to be a cop. Right. Uh, her father was a Vietnam vet and apparently did have some PTSD issues, probably some substance abuse issues, although it's never mentioned. Um, he was volatile. He had nightmares. He woke up screaming. He would get paranoid. Um, I, you know, I mean, it was a chaotic childhood for her. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was also very good at putting on a happy face and convincing people outside the home that everything was fine, Uh, which probably to her detriment in the long run. Um, Before she graduated high school, though, her father got a job with uh, a phone company, I guess South Southern Bell or AT&T or whoever serves Southwestern Bell, whoever serves Opelousas. And he right. returned to Opelousas to work. And so the family moved back to Opelousas. And I believe her family moved to New Orleans while her father was in Vietnam okay. and in the Army. And so when he returned from the Army, that's when they went back to Opelousas. Uh, it's kind of oh, – wow. that, that history is kind of sketchy. But anyway – um, she ended up graduating high school in Opelousas. Uh, interestingly, she doesn't appear in the yearbooks. And none of the teachers at the school at the time remember her. Hmm. She pretty much kept to herself. She had no friends. Um, she was an enigma. Apparently, shortly after graduating from high school, she went to work for Walmart, 
But after about six months, she was fired for conflicts with other employees and supervisors. Oh, okay. Then she decided to relocate to New Orleans where she actually – she hadn't turned 21 yet. She got a job at a Walmart in New Orleans. I guess they didn't check in with the one in Opelousas. Perhaps she didn't disclose that she had worked for them in Opelousas. Yeah, the internet wasn't um, what it is today. And um, she actually did okay at the Walmart in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when she turned 21, she put in her application to the New Orleans Police Department. Um, the written tests and the physical tests, she did really well on because there's a little bit of a classroom, like a civil service exam that you do. And she did well on that. There's a, a physical, uh, like a PT right. type test that you do. She did well on that. She was very athletic. But she f- failed the psychiatric and psychological evaluations. Do we know what she failed and for? Yes. She failed on the psychological evaluations. Um, she scored very low on the MMPI and the uh, uh, the MMPI and the uh, California. It's a California personality test. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, hmm. Okay. She. Uh, Let's see. She basically scored uh, the the doctor who evaluated her reports found that she was making herself uh, evaluated the testing found she was trying to make herself look good. Um, she kind of invalidated one of the tests because she was trying so hard to make herself look good. She was also low on empathy, uh, below average on empathy, empathy and insight, sound judgment, common sense, okay. um, freedom from psychopathology and conventional and rule abiding. She was above average in effectiveness and effectiveness in social relationships, but that's why all these years, you know, people didn't realize how much was truly wrong with Antoinette Frank. Right. Um, she also rated poorly in tolerance, open-mindedness, and impulse control. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so she was found to be uh, unacceptable, an unacceptable candidate for the police academy. Now, with bureaucracy and due process. When there's a process that can deny you, you have to have a process where you can challenge that denial. And so Antoinette Frank used the rules and the due process requirements to her advantage. She began an all-out campaign to get herself a job with NOPD. Right. 
And um, so she got a private psychiatrist or psychologist who basically said, oh, no, no, these aren't big deals. These aren't problems. She'll make a good – she's an acceptable candidate. Right. Um, They essentially paid for a private opinion that said she was okay. She also presented letters from people like Sidney Bartholomew, uh, the chief of police at the time, judges – all recommending her to the police academy. Really? These people didn't, you know, I mean, Sidney Bartholomew didn't sign recommendation letters for candidates for the police academy. Oh, it had okay. nothing to do with his office. So, more likely than not, it's not proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but more likely than not, all those letters of recommendation were uh, cooked up by Antoinette Frank and forged signatures. So the question I have here is, why isn't the left hand talking to the right hand, and why isn't somebody calling Sidney Bartholomew to go, hey, Sid, you know this person? What's going on? This, this, this kind of thing, generally you only realize after it's too late. Yeah. I worked for a law office we had a person who was hired through a service as a nurse paralegal. Mm-hmm. We did not check her credentials because we were assured that her credentials were top-notch by the service who earned a fee for placing her with us. She took all kind of money. She did not do the work that she was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. She missed some important deadlines that she was supposed to file stuff for. And when the crap hit the turbine and someone in our office tried to independently check her references, found out that she had none. All right. So generally, you don't find out these things until something bad happens or something leads you to question the authenticity of what you've been told. Right. So, um, you know, they just, uh, like I said, they thought they thought everything was legitimate. They thought she was connected. And so, you know. And like I said, she had her problem was the psychological psychiatric, and she had that covered with a second opinion, basically. Now, another interesting thing is during the pendency of all this, Antoinette disappeared for about 36 hours. Really? She was going to see an attorney to help her with her challenge. She and her father went downtown. She left him in the car, went into the building, went upstairs, 
And a little while later, her father went to check on her, and she was nowhere to be found. Hmm. So he reported her missing. Right. And she showed up the next day as though nothing had happened. This bitch psycho. <laughs> and it was shortly after that that she got the letter saying, you're accepted NOPD, so she went into the police academy. Um, the timeline is not really entirely clear. She and Ronnie Williams may have been in the same academy class, or he may have been in the class just ahead of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, the academy class is only eight or ten weeks. It's not a really long program. Right. Uh once you get out of the uh, academy, you go to your district, and then you ride with a field training officer. Okay. Uh, and, you know, basically, I, I think there's no set time with the field training officer. Basically, when he thinks, he's, you know, you're ready to take the training wheels off, he signs you off and, and you go on your own. Some departments, you ride with the FTO for a year. Mm-hmm. And then you're on probation. But NOPD was losing so many officers. Uh, you know, I think you remember we talked about, uh, about this with Commander Gurnan. NOPD had a top-notch academy, even back in the 90s. But the problem was other agencies within Louisiana to New Orleans when the academy classes were graduating and recruit the graduates from the academy and if they offered better pay and they offered better benefits, then those, those recruits went to those other agencies rather than you know staying with NOPD. And another hurdle with NOPD was there was a residency requirement. You had to live in New Orleans, in Orleans Parish, where it was pretty expensive compared to Jefferson Parish, St. Bernard Parish, even you know St. Tammany Parish and St. John Parish nearby. Um, if you had, you know, if you already had a house in in uh, in Metairie in Jefferson Parish, you'd have to sell it and move to New Orleans. True. And so, you know, that was another hurdle was the residency requirement. Uh, People, you know, some people didn't want to live in New Orleans because it was expensive or they didn't want to live in New Orleans because of the crime or they didn't want to live in New Orleans because in every district you have your nice hair areas, you have your middle class areas, and then you have your incredibly poor areas. And sometimes there's only a few blocks separating any one from the other. Um, You know, when we lived in Britannia in the Garden District, one of the fruit-freest areas in New Orleans, uh, we were six blocks from a major housing project. Okay, true. So, uh, and that's the way New Orleans is. I mean, you know, 
But so again, some people on on eighteen thousand dollars a year, you can't live in New Orleans. Even if you go across the river into the West Bank, because the rents were just too high. Right. That's why I ended up in Metairie. You know, where that's why I lived in Metairie, because every place I looked at in in New Orleans was a thousand dollars a month. Whereas yeah. the apartment I rented in Metairie was like three sixty five, four hundred. Ah, good point. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so she also was assigned to the seventh district, and it was Stanley Morlier and Ron Williams who got her into the paid details at Kim On. But she was only meant to kind of give them a break. <laughs> because the other thing with the paid details is a lot of officers would work their shift and then go to the paid detail. Or okay. work the paid detail and then go go clock in for their shift. Mm-hmm. So it was it was very, you know, a very challenging schedule. And um, so they, you know, got her a few, a few shifts. So, you know, Ron could spend an evening home with his kids and his wife and uh, Stanley could spend time with his family. But uh, Antoinette's Frank, Frank's personality, she apparently thought once she started working details, and the Voos liked her so much, she should have gotten all the details and let Stanley and Ron get the scraps she didn't want. That was the way her psychopathology worked. Um, she also didn't like criticism. On the job, she had a lot of problems. She was timid. Um, she wasn't, it's weird, she wasn't aggressive around the other officers. And she didn't know how to do the job. Right. Early on in her uh, initial days at the at the seventh district, the field training officer she rode with said, "You need to send her ass back to the academy because she didn't know what she's doing." Right. And she didn't take constructive criticism. Huh. You know where. If she, you know, messed up a report, and the supervisor said, "Oh, look, Antoinette, you've got to, you got to put this down. You got to get the, you know, you got it. When you do an accident report, you got to get the other driver. You got to get the driver's driver's license numbers. You didn't put them on here. She would get mad. Right. Um, she once accused one of the the supervisors of sexual harassment. Oh dear lord. When you know all all he did was just say she had done an unacceptable report. Wow. So yeah, she had an attitude. Yeah, just slightly. So, um, so that's that's pretty much uh, Rogers Lacaz. He was born in New Orleans in 1976. So he was the same age as Kwong and Kwok Vu. 
Antoinette was around the same age as Ron and Chalbu. Mm-hmm. Um, he was raised with his brother by a single mother. Uh, apparently, his father was not really in his life. Um, he and his brother, Michael, got into drug dealing pretty early. And so the year before all this happened, or maybe 18 months before this happened, when he was about 17, his mom threw him out the house because she was a hardworking woman. She was a Christian woman, and she didn't think the life on the streets was what either Rogers or Michael should be occupying themselves with. Right. And they didn't want to listen to her, and they didn't want to respect her. And they disrespected her. So she put him out the house. Well, good. And um, more power to you, lady. Um, So so then they were out out on the street on their own. Unfortunately, they were out on the street on their own, and so they just started slinging drugs more. Oh, yeah. And um, at some point, I'm guessing afterwards, again, the timeline's really kind of fluid. Michael was shot in a drive-by shooting and paralyzed from the waist down. Oof. Okay. So he was confined to a wheelchair. Uh, And then in November of 1994, Rogers was shot in at an apartment complex in New Orleans East and his friend Nehemiah Miller was also shot. He died. Rogers was put into a vehicle and taken to the hospital. Um, that was when he met Antoinette Frank. She went to the hospital with a, a photo array to see if he could identify the person who shot him. Right. Um, what happened with that case is kind of unclear. Um, I don't know whether he identified the person or whether he didn't identify that person and perhaps street justice was employed to even the score. I don't know uh, whether he did it or somebody did it on his behalf or whatever. Um, But at that point, Antoinette Frank began a relationship with Lacaze. Oof. She, uh, and in some ways, she seems to have had good intentions. She helped him get his GED because he dropped out of high school. Uh-huh. Um, she was taking him around looking for jobs, uh, trying to get him, you know, away from drug dealing and into a better law-abiding life, it would seem. However, she was also bringing him around in the police car because by this time, her training officer has gone to a community policing unit that she was not suited for. Mm -hmm. And none of the other officers in the 7th District want to ride with her. And so she's in a car by herself. So she's going to take accident reports and respond to 
basically primarily non-emergency calls because nobody wants to ride with her. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and, you know, there are some good reasons. When she was still riding with a training officer, there was a an attempted armed robbery where the victim was shot in the face by mm-hmm. one of the perpetrators. The son of the victim chased the perpetrator who ran into a nearby apartment complex right into the arms of security at the complex. Uh, Antoinette Frank and her partner got to the complex, picked the the suspect up, put him in the back of the police car, came back to the house where the shooting happened in an effort to get an identification from the victim or the victim's family uh, to make sure they had the right suspect. The partner went in to talk to the victim and the victim's family and left Antoinette Frank to get the details on the suspect. Name, date of birth, social security number, addresses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, EMS was there. They were getting ready to take the the victim to charity hospital. The son could give a description. The father could give a description. But neither one of them at that time were able to – the father wasn't even able to look at the guy to see if that was him. Right. And the son could only say, all I know is he had orange pants. Uh, they go to charity. They bring the suspect into the treatment room. The poor victim has lost sight in one eye, and the other eye's blurry because uh, he's on drugs because he's been shot in the face. Mm-hmm. And he can't ID the guy. So they turn him loose. And the partner's thinking, okay, no problem. We turn him loose, keep working the case, we get some evidence, we sign out, we you know, swear out an arrest warrant, we pick him up later. No biggie, right? Antoinette right. Frank didn't get any information from the suspect. She didn't get his name. She didn't get his date of birth. She didn't get his address. She didn't get anything from him. Oh, dear Lord. And so they turned him loose, and they had no way of tracking him down again. And once again, it's something that the knowing what happened later with Lacaz, the training officer who was riding with her at the time wonders, was this guy with Lacaz pulling this attempted armed robbery? Oh, and that's why she let him go. Uh, they he knew he knew Lacaz he knew the guy wasn't Lacaz, but could it have been somebody pulling an attempted armed robbery with Rogers Lacaz? And Rogers had a pretty clean record, although he did have a couple of assault charges. And hmm. then, you know, the other problem with Frank is. Uh, in an incident in January of 1995, Lacaz had an altercation with a guy. Uh, a few minutes later, a police car pulls the guy over. Out comes Antoinette Frank from the police car. And a couple minutes after that, out comes Rogers Lacaz with a Tech 9. 
Oh, dear Lord. After Antoinette Franks got these two guys out of this car on the, you know, trunk of the car. And I firmly believe that Rogers Lacaz was going to try and settle the score. And Antoinette Frank was going to stand by and let him do it. Mm-hmm. Luckily, the guys saw that, saw Rogers with the Tech Nine, and they were like, oh, fuck no. And so they both struggled and fought. Uh, one of the guys got away, and a civil sheriff's deputy witnessed the struggle and came in and intervened. Right. And Antoinette Frank filed a phony police report accusing this guy or these two guys of robbing Lacoste. So she claimed she responded to a a robbery call where Lacoste said he was robbed by these two guys. And she put him in the patrol car to try and find the guys. Which is really not police 101. And if you were any, you know, were half decent police officer, you'd freaking know that. You know, you get a description of the people, you put it over the air. You stay with the victim. You let somebody else catch the other two guys. Right. But like I said, she was kind of clueless. And she wasn't open to constructive criticism or anybody trying to help her learn. Mm -hmm. Even though she claims this is her lifelong dream. But I think, you know, I think looking at it, she wanted the power and she wanted the perks, and she didn't necessarily want to do the job, and she certainly didn't necessarily want to help anybody but herself. Um, She was also taking advantage of the booze, because even though she wasn't working many details, she was still going in there like three times a week getting food for free and getting drinks for free. Oh, wow. And the Voos were so good that they knew this, but they didn't hold it against her. They probably thought she's lonely. Her daddy disappeared. Because I forgot to tell you. At some point in, I think, September, sometime between July and September of 1994, her dad disappeared. Right. And she very calmly walked to the 7th District Station and said her dad had disappeared like three days ago. He walked out of the house with nothing but clothes on his back at the time, and she hadn't seen him since. Hmm. Anybody ever found him? Uh, you're, You're trying to make me spoil it. Oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> Spoiler Alright let's um, Why don't we go ahead and take a break Okay And um, Then we'll pick up Because we're at We're at March 3rd and 4th 1995 Okay Sounds good ladies and gentlemen You're listening to We'll be right back to this Thank you. 
Loyola Gym, Saturday, June 29th, it's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace of Morta, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Ray, Insane Shane, and current AWO champion at D-Mike. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. perfect song for them. Absolutely. So, uh, and there is, before we get into the, the, the details of Mark Sheridanforth, there is one other minor character who I uh, left off of the outline, and I apologize for that, Michael, and that is uh, Antoinette's older brother, Adam. Okay. Uh, he too was born in Opelousa. He came to New Orleans with the family, uh, but he did not live on the right side of the law. He had chosen the other side. He was a burglar. He had committed some armed robberies. Uh, sometime in 1994, after she became a police officer, Adam escaped from or or violated probation and left St. Landry Parish and came to New Orleans and stayed with his sister Antoinette. Hmm. Now, she's a police officer. She knows he's on probation. Uh, 
Because she knows he's not supposed to be in New Orleans. And I believe he'd also been indicted for attempted manslaughter. Oh, dear Lord. In St. Landry Parish. But she doesn't say, look, Adam, you can't stay with me. You're a fugitive. Go back to Opelousas, turn yourself in, and take care of your business. She said, sure, stay with me. Lisa, I mean, let's be honest here, though. Let's be honest here. We're talking about the same woman that failed the common sense portion of this exam. <laughs> this is true. Um, and, you know, this was one of the one of the sources of tension with Kim on and the details. Because Antoinette has just started working the details. She's bringing Adam with her. Um, when she goes to her shift, she's leaving Adam at Kim on. Really? To have free food and drinks and hang out at Kim on while she's at work. Because she probably didn't trust him to stay in her, in her house. Truth Absolutely. be told. Um, sometime in December of, 20, of 1994, uh, another police officer ran Adam's name found he was wanted. Uh, authorities went to Antoinette's house. She said Adam was no longer there. He had apparently fled to Rayville, which is in North Louisiana, and um, he wasn't there anymore. But there were, you know, there were some issues of her harboring a fugitive during that time. And there was a potential for some adverse employment action against her for that. Oh, Although I don't yeah. think they pursued it. Not to mention adverse um, legal. Yeah. So uh so that was that's Adam. Uh he'll he'll come in, you know, later on. He'll come back later on. Okay. So um on the third of March at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Lacaz uh, La and Frank, in her NOPD uniform, go to the Walmart on Bullard, where she used to work, and attempt to buy 9 millimeter ammunition. Mm-hmm. They don't want the 1695 Remington ammunition. They want the cheap ammunition, the 995 box. <laughs> So they apparently leave without purchasing ammunition at the Walmart on Bullard. Mm-hmm. Uh, at around 9 o'clock, Frank leaves her shift early and calls the Kim on restaurant to see about working the detail that night. She's told that uh, Ron Williams is coming in. Another officer was there. They didn't need her that night. Maybe the next night, you know, so she and she was apparently upset about this development Uh, at around 11 o'clock when she would have been getting off her shift she left two hours early we don't know whether she cleared it with anybody or not Um, she picked up Lacaz at his baby mama's house or baby mama's apartment 
and they start going driving around. Uh, she changes clothes. At about that same time, Ron's reporting to Kim on for the detail that night. Uh, he's just gotten off his shift. Uh, around 11.45 or so, uh, Frank shows up at Kim on to pick up drinks. She says she and her nephew are going to a movie at the midnight movie, and mm-hmm. they just wanted drinks. So she goes in and Kim on gets some free drinks. Uh, they leave. It was slow that night, so uh, the foos decided to go ahead and just close the restaurant a little early. Their mother leaves to go home because she hadn't been well for the past couple days. And the younger foos are, you know, doing everything you need to do to close down. About 12.15 or so, Lacaz and Frank show up. Oh, Frank calls first, wanting food. Right. And she wants the wants them to make hamburgers for her. They don't have any hamburger buns, so they're going to make steak and french fries. <laughs> Upgrade. So Ha cooks steak and french fries for Frank. Um, apparently there was a miscommunication. that She didn't tell them La Cause was still with her. Uh, they thought she only needed one meal. She needed two because Lacoste was with her. Um, they show up while everybody's doing their closing. And they come in. Instead of taking the food to go, they come in because Lacoste wants to eat inside. Um, okay. Of course, hint, hint for anybody who's paying attention. Lacoste is in there scoping the place out. He's looking at who's, you know, who's doing what, how many people are there. Uh, you know, he's he's scoping the place out. Absolutely. They sit there for a few minutes. Lacoste says he doesn't like the food, gets up and leaves. They get up and leave. God. While they're there, Frank somehow gets her hands on Chow's front door key. Because when they go to leave, Chow realizes she can't find her front door key. Mm-hmm. So he gets, she gets the key from somebody else and locks up behind Frank and Lacoste as they're leaving. They stay outside talking for a few minutes, and then they get in her car, which is a Ford Torino. Have you ever seen Starsky and Hutch? Yes. It's just like Starsky's car. Okay. So it didn't have the white racing stripe. It was a red Ford Torino. Um, so they leave, uh, Chow goes back in, Chow's counting the money out, everybody's cleaning up, clearing up, getting ready to close the restaurant, and Chow sees Frank walking toward the door, and she gets a feeling, she knows, she knows something's wrong, and she grabs the money and she runs toward the kitchen telling Ron Williams, don't let her in. Well, before he can really process what's going on, Frank has let herself in with Chow's door key. As Chow comes back toward the front, Frank grabs Chow and 
Kwok, her brother, who had been sweeping and, you know, clearing up the dining room, and she starts pushing them toward the kitchen. Right. Uh, Ron Williams is, again, trying to process what's going on. And as he's following them toward the kitchen, Lacoste walks up behind him and shoots him once in the back of the head. And then once he's down, he's shot two more times, either by Lacaz or later on by Antoinette Frank. Lacaz takes Ron's wallet and his duty gun. Frank, when she hears the shooting, she runs back because she's got to make sure Ron hadn't put one in Lacaz, which if only that had been what happened. Um. When Frank is distracted, Chow and Kwok and uh, another waitress named Vuivu, who was maybe a cousin or an aunt or a, a relative of their family, the three of them run into a, a cooler, a walking cooler, that goes between the kitchen and the, and the grocery store side. And they're hiding in there. Chow and Kwok are trying to get Ha Ha and Kwong to come into the cooler with them. But Ha and Kwong are so stunned that they just freeze. Right. And then before they, you know, can recover, Frank and Lacaz come back into the kitchen. And they're wanting to know where the money is. They're demanding to know where the money is. Um, If... What happens later is probably what happened at that time for Han Kwong. They were so afraid that they were not processing English and probably could not have spoken English if they wanted to. Because they were probably too stunned. Uh And so they are on their knees they don't understand what's going on. Um, some say begging for their lives, but I don't think they really were. I think they knew what was going to happen, and given that both of them had a a lot of spirituality, they were devout Catholics, um, I think that they both were just – they knew what was going to happen. Right. They were kind of at peace. And they were, you know, at peace – with it happening and that there was nothing that they could do. Right. And um, Frank shot Ha twice in the head. She shot Kwong once in the chest. He didn't die quick enough, so she shot him five more times. Man. Um. Frank and Lacaz search the kitchen. Finally, Frank finds the money in the microwave. She grabs it. They leave. Um, Chow has watched. She sees the lights leave the restaurant and, you know, through the cooler because it, it, it's a walk-in cooler. I mean, mm. they're really kind of stupid that they didn't even look in the cooler. They just presumed we ha a we. Chow and Kwok had gone out the back door. 
Um, Chow gets her cell phone. She tries to call 911. Uh, the battery, either Frank has done something to her phone or the battery just had run down. Um, but she calls a friend to get a friend to call 911, and her call, her phone dies. Quok decides they've got to do something. He goes out the back door and runs to a friend's house who lives on Pressburg within sight of the restaurant. And okay. from there, uh, the call is placed at about 1.41 in the morning to NOPD. Frank, in the meanwhile, drops the cause off at Baby Mama's apartment. And then she drives to the 7th District. She goes in. She gets keys to a patrol unit. And then she comes back to the restaurant because she's got to go back and get rid of the witnesses. Right. Um, She comes in through the back door. Chow sees her. Chow runs out the front door. Officers are responding. Uh, Two, I think, narcotics detectives have arrived. One of those officers, detectives, is married to another officer who has just arrived. Mm -hmm. And it is into that woman's arms that Chow runs with Antoinette Frank behind her. And Chow is so distraught that she cannot speak English. Right. She's speaking Vietnamese, and none of these detectives, officers, understands what she's saying. However, at one point, Frank asks, what happened, Chow? Who did this? Who did this? And Chow looks at her. And says, how can you ask me that? You know you did this. Uh, while this is going on, Lacaz is called Brother Michael. Brother Michael gets in girlfriend's car and comes across the river from Gretna to New Orleans East, which is a long little hike, even at that time of the morning. He picks Lacaz up to go stay at his place in Gretna. Um, they go to Gretna, they get to the apartment, Michael's like, oh, damn, I got to pick my girlfriend up at her grandmother's house, and, um, her car's almost out of gas, I was supposed to stop and get gas, but I'm in this wheelchair, I can't pump gas, so the cause will say, hey, hey, bro, I got you, he goes to the gas station, and what does he use to pay for gas? Cash. No, he uses Ron Williams Chevron credit card. To pay for gas at this gas station where he and his brother are regulars, where the attendant knows him and knows his brother and knows his brother's car because he's pumped gas into the car for the brother. Wow. And so the the attendant is inside and, and the station's locked up and closed. You you speak to the attendant through a window. Like if you want a cold drink or a pack of cigarettes, you go to the window. You tell the attendant what you want. He goes through the store. He gets what you want. He rings it up. He tells you how much it is. You put your money through the slot, and then he gives you the bag of stuff. Okay. Okay. You don't walk in that store at one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. 
Um, heck, we've got a, a shop on Berman that I go to where as soon as it gets dark, they lock that sh- they lock that place up tight. Right. And, you know, after dark, you stand in line and you deal with the window. So, um, so he hears the, the credit card thing going off. And he looks out there and he sees Rogers Lacaze using a credit card. And he even gets on the intercom and teases and says, when would they give you a credit card? <laughs> so, um, Quok returns to the restaurant during this time. He also identifies Frank and Lacaze. They all go to police headquarters, and Chow and Quok, if if there can if you can say there are rock stars in a situation like this or a tragedy like this, it's Chow and Quok. Okay. Because they gave statements to the police. They described Lacaz to a T, even though they didn't know his name, but they also knew that Frank was telling them, telling everybody she, he was her nephew. And, I mean, they described him short, young, gold teeth in the top of his mouth. That was huh. their description. Um, Chow was unable to pick Lacaz out of a photo lineup but again, the physical description she gave fits Lacoste to a T. Right. Quok, in addition to physically describing Lacoste, picked him out of a lineup without any hesitation. Not a lineup, a photo array. No hesitation. Um, Frank and Lacoste are each questioned. And when Frank realizes that her story about witnessing the robbery and trying to save everybody and then running to the 7th District to get a police car when she had a police radio at her disposal and didn't call it in, and when she had a cell phone and she didn't call it in, um, when she realizes that's not going to fly, Then she goes for plan B, which is, I didn't want to do it. Lacaz made me do it. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Okay. Lacaz, he has no problem immediately throwing Antoinette Frank under the bus and then back in the bus over her ass. He basically says, look, she was pissed off at Ronnie Williams. He was screwing her over on the details. Uh, So she was going to get him. She was going to kill him. We go in. I'm just there. Okay? I didn't shoot nobody. I didn't have nothing to do. We didn't get no money. I didn't do anything. Of course, they don't know about the Chevron credit card at that point. Uh, Frank and LaCaza are arrested. Uh at some point, a couple of weeks later, Mary Williams contacts the detectives and says, 
somebody's used Ron's credit card at a gas station in Gretna. Detectives go, find the attendant, talk to the attendant. He picks Lacaz out of a lineup. He knows Lacaz. He knows Michael's car. He knows Michael. Um, he even gets the receipt for the credit card charge with the exact date and time and amount, and it becomes exhibit whatever in Roger Lacaz's trial. Oh, Jesus. Um, that is so, so now, interestingly enough, both Lacaz and Antoinette Frank actually had retained counsel rather than public defenders. Apparently, Frank's mother was able to gather enough money to hire Robert Jenkins. Right. He may have, once the money ran out, he may have gotten the public defender's office to uh, pay him. I'm not sure. Or he may have continued representing her pro bono. Mm-hmm. Lacaz had an attorney who was hired by his mother to defend him. Right. Uh, the prosecution's case, well, there's Chow and Kwok's IDs. There's the gas station attendant's ID for the use of the credit card. Not to mention the circumstantial proximity of the gas station to uh, Michael's apartment as well as the fact that the gas going in was going into Michael's car. Right. And LaCasse's admission during his questioning, because this was an armed robbery, they claim they didn't get any money, which Kwong, uh, not Kwong, Chow and Kwok both say they got money out of the microwave where Chow had hidden it. And you mean, when they went back in the kitchen the money was no longer in the microwave. Um, but even if they hadn't gotten that money, even if they hadn't found it, Lacaz took Ron Williams' service pistol and his wallet, which he used yeah. a credit card from that wallet to buy gasoline. That right. is armed robbery. Yeah. Three people died during the course of that armed robbery. It doesn't matter whether you pulled the trigger or not. You participated in it. The, somebody had a gun because it wasn't Ron's service weapon. Uh, by the way, Ron's service weapon was recovered a couple years later after another crime in Gretna. Well. So, again, there's the proximity to Michael LaCasse's apartment coming into play. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so when they have his admission, I mean, even if he didn't shoot anybody, he was there, he participated, he knew there was a gun, and, you know, that's first-degree murder. During the course right. of an armed robbery, police officer, because when they're working paid details, they're still police officers, and they're still doing their duty. And then first-degree murder for Ha and Kwong. Uh, the defense was basically it wasn't Rogers, it was Antoinette's brother Adam. 
that mm. apparently um, Lacaz never met up with her that night, and he tried to testify at, at trial on this. And it's like, this guy ain't that bright, and he's going up against a prosecutor who has a mind as sharp as a scalpel right? by the name of Glenn Woods. And interesting, interestingly enough, uh, Mr. Woods is also African-American. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> I wouldn't think that there's a basis for racial bias there. Um, yeah. But, and, you know, I mean, Ha and Kwong are Asian. Right. Um, so he tries to testify it wasn't him. It had to have been Adam. <clears throat> and this didn't really come in at trial, but the Vus knew Adam. If Adam had been the person with Antoinette, they would have said it was Adam. Right. They wouldn't have described her nephew, who's five foot three and weighs 135 pounds and is about 18 years old, whereas Adam's a year older than Frank, so he was probably about 26. Um, he's six foot five and he weighed 230 pounds. He's built like a linebacker. Right. So you know that's they would have said it was Adam. They wouldn't have said it was her nephew. So, and Adam doesn't have gold teeth. Um, he tried to also present an alibi defense uh, through his brother, saying they were playing pool at Mr. C's. But the manager of Mr. C's came in and testified that Michael was there playing pool. And it was kind of unusual to see Michael there without Rogers. But Michael was the only one there. Uh, um, the jury verdict, it took slightly more than an hour, I believe, for Lacoste to be found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. The sentencing phase followed. Apparently, his attorney did not really do any mitigation or um, present much of a defense case during the sentencing phase. And so Rogers Lacaze was sentenced to death. Hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Next came Antoinette Frank's trial, because the trials had been severed. Uh, again, the prosecution was the IDs of Chow and Kwok, uh, the fact that she had obtained a weapon from the NOPD property and evidence room, or whatever you want to call it, and her admission during her questioning uh, to being present and participating or, you know, participating under duress because she claimed Rogers Lacoste held a gun to her head and made her shoot Han Kwong. <clears throat> and so that was her defense at trial that, you know, she was there, she made a mistake, but Lacoste, the 18-year-old thug, made her do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the jury also found her guilty of three counts of first-degree murder in probably under an hour. 
and she was also sentenced to death. Um, again, neither of the defense, neither of the defense has put on much of a mitigation case. Right. Um, part of the problem with Frank is that when her attorney had a psychologist come to meet with her to uh, get information from her to present mitigation, Frank refused to talk to him. Wow. Her attorney was trying to save her life. He wanted her examined to see if she was competent to even stand trial. And she refused to participate in that process as well. So she's one of those crazy people that doesn't want to admit that she's crazy. Ah, Although I don't think it's necessarily crazy. I think it's more along the lines of uh, uh, narcissistic personality disorder with antisocial tendencies, which is what her psychic valuation with NOPD initially suggested. So, um, so that was, uh, she was sentenced to death as well. Shortly after her trial and while her direct appeal was pending, and I remember this, I was driving to work one morning. The person who rented her house on Michigan Street their dog went in the backyard or went under the house and started digging and unearthed a human bone. Um, Investigators found the skeletonized remains of a male who had been shot in the head. Son of a bitch, I knew it. Buried under the house. Um, Now, the Remains have never been conclusively identified as belonging to Adam Frank Sr. Lisa, don't give me they, that. No, I, I'm serious. It's true. that they, they have not been identified. These were skeletonized remains. In 1995, there was no soft tissue remaining. Um, the uh, getting DNA from bones, I think... You can't get nuclear. You can only get mitochondrial. So you could only get a reference sample from a sister, his mother, his grandmother to determine whether the bones are Adam Frank or or could be Adam Frank's or not. There may not be a, a relative in the female line available. For them to test. Mm-hmm. Why don't they test Frank? <clears throat> because mitochondrial DNA is passed from the mother, not the father. Oh, 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 okay. I got you. I got you. I, I, I think if there's bone marrow, you can get nuclear DNA. But the impression that I got was the state of the remains were completely desiccated. Okay. There was no tissue. There was no bone marrow. You can get mitochondria, but there are no nucleated cells to get nuclear DNA from. 
And like I said, they may not have a female. He would have to test a sister, his mother, his grandmother, a maternal aunt. Um, I don't even think that the YSTR would be like they could, if they had material, if they had nuclear DNA, they could do a YSTR test with Adam Jr. Of course, they might find out that Adam Jr. ain't really Adams, but whatever. Um, But if there's no nuclear DNA, you have to do mitochondrial DNA, and that only passes from the maternal line. Okay. So um, Frank's direct appeal was decided first. The... Louisiana Supreme Court limited its decision to her to the guilt phase of her uh, direct appeal because they found that when she requested to be declared indigent for purposes of obtaining sentencing uh, a mitigation specialist or psychological specialist to evaluate her for sentencing purposes. Uh, the judge incorrectly determined that she was not indigent. Hmm. And so they felt that the judge needed to um, have another hearing and determine whether she was, in fact, indigent or not and whether she was entitled. So they they basically remanded the case to the trial court to determine whether she was indeed indigent. If the judge determined she was indigent, then the Louisiana Supreme Court was going to re was going to evaluate the sentencing portion of her trial and determine whether she was entitled to a new sentencing phase. During a hearing for that particular determination, the psychologist who was retained by her attorney testified that he had attempted to interview and she refused to talk to him. Her attorney testified, I knew she refused to talk to him, and that was my bad because I was supposed to be there when she talked to him, and I couldn't make it. And then For some reason or another that I can't really explain, it's my fault. I never made arrangements to be with him so that he could interview her and do this. So basically, it was determined that her attorney tried to get a a psychologist and she wouldn't cooperate. Right. And so if she's not going to help herself... Then they evaluated the penalty penalty phase without <laughs> with that, that you know the penalty phase that occurred because she wouldn't cooperate. And Mr. Jenkins is is very smart. He fell on his sword. He you know he tried to give her ineffective. He tried to you know give judges the appearance of ineffective assistance of counsel uh, to get her another bite at the apple. But uh, it didn't.
under the totality of the facts and evidence, that did not uh, that did not happen. So, in 2007, her uh, penalty phase was also affirmed. So, um, Frank filed a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was denied, and so her direct appeal became final uh, in about in 2008. Right. Um, LaCaza's direct appeal was decided in 2002. And basically, he was, you know, no no more successful than she was. Uh, The court found that um, the complaints he made regarding errors at his trial were not meritorious, and they affirmed not only his... uh, conviction and his sentence in 2002 and that became final in 2002 because I don't no no actually no it became final when a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court was also denied I believe in 2003 so then state post-conviction begins In 2008, Frank got an execution date from Judge Marullo, who was the original trial judge. Her attorneys filed a request to stay that pending her filing post-conviction, and they asked for more time within which to file a post-conviction claim. That was granted. When that time expired, she... Uh, Judge Marullo set a second date in 2008. Her attorneys once again tried to get additional time, which was granted by the Louisiana Supreme Court. And her execution in December of 2008 was stayed. I don't believe that any state post-conviction has actually been filed on behalf of Antoinette Frank since that time. I cannot find any record of it. Right. There's no review by the Fourth Circuit, by the Louisiana Supreme Court. There's been nothing in the news about it. Um, so I I don't quite understand, except that Louisiana is not Texas, and we don't have a whole lot of people on death row, and we're not in a big hurry to execute them. So 12 years later, there's no state post-conviction claims filed on behalf of Antoinette Frank, but nobody's in a hurry to set her execution date. Makes sense, right? And um, I, I will keep an eye on it, and if I find something, I will certainly schedule another episode so we can talk about it. Um, but she basically, she has no state post-conviction and no federal, nothing's been filed in federal court either. 
Okay. So um, her conviction and sentence are final. That means that her guilt is not up for debate or question. She did it. So says a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, and so says the Louisiana Supreme Court. Hmm. Okay. Rogers Lacaz, on the other hand, he filed a pro se post-conviction writ, and it was later supplemented uh, by probably more likely than not pro bono counsel. In 2012 and 2013, that counsel in investigating claims filed FOIA requests with the FBI seeking records regarding Adam Frank, who is their alternate suspect, and records related to investigations of New Orleans Police Department, the 7th District of the New Orleans Police Department, paid details, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The request for records of Adam Frank were declined, denied by the FBI, and uh, LaCasa's attorney filed a legal challenge in the District of Columbia. That was dismissed on motion of the FBI, essentially finding that the LaCaz's attorney had not presented any evidence that would implicate Adam Frank, and therefore the records that may or not may not exist of the FBI uh, are not discoverable or she's not entitled to those records because she doesn't have a, a an evidentiary basis. She's just on a fishing expedition, right. essentially. The FOIA request related to NOPD, the 7th District and paid details, was eventually dismissed after the FBI did produce some documents. I don't know what those documents are, But uh, the FBI did produce some documents, and there were at that time, because of another officer by the name of Len Davis, there were investigations of NOPD being conducted by the FBI. There were investigations of paid details being conducted by the FBI. However, Ron Williams and the 7th District were not implicated in any of the indictments that resulted from those investigations. The Len Davis indictment involved Len Davis and officers from the 5th and 2nd districts. Ron Williams was never indicted. In fact, no officers from the 7th district were ever indicted, and no officers from the 7th district were ever proven to be involved in criminal activity other than Antoinette Frank. Hmm. 
2013, LaCasa's claims were presented for hearing at the trial court in Orleans Parish. One of the claims is that Judge Frank Marullo should have recused himself because he signed an order releasing a weapon to Antoinette Frank prior to these murders. And the weapon released to her is consistent with the weapon that's believed to have been used in the murders. Um, Judge Marullo was not the target of the investigation of that incident, however. The target of the investigation that was launched after the murders was an officer by the name of Tally who ran the NOPD Central Evidence and Property Room. He ended up briefly losing his job because he apparently went into CYA mode and tried to cover his ass and ended up basically making inconsistent statements between his testimony at Frank's trial and his statements to PIB, which is the Public Integrity Bureau. Um, He also uh, admitted to leaving Frank alone in the gun vault at which time a 380 disappeared. Uh-huh. And a 380 is the ammunition. Uh, the 9 millimeter am- ammunition was also, I think, could be used in a 380. Um, huh. But, you know, uh, Frank reported the 9 millimeter stolen two weeks before the murders. And then Adam Frank, when he was arrested in in Rayville, had a 9mm gun with some serial numbers consistent with that gun from the property room. But they were only able to raise, you know, part of the serial number. They weren't able to raise a complete serial number. Um, But for some reason... When he was arrested in Rayville, the gun wasn't transferred to Orleans, and it was destroyed. And of course, there's a you know there there's a big un ill-defined conspiracy behind that. But he didn't present evidence of all that in any of his court proceedings. So we can only sketch the edges of that. Uh, claim and then also at the hearing uh, two of the two of three complained of jurors were questioned one was a gentleman by the name of Settle who had worked as a law enforcement officer for railroads in other states prior to coming to Louisiana Uh uh-huh uh, he didn't disclose that during voir dire. At the time of the trial in LaCaza's case, he was a an officer who worked at the Department of Motor Vehicles. He did not carry a badge. He did not have arrest powers. 
And then another juror uh, whose last name was Mushat, and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, she was a dispatcher for NOPD, and she was married to a police officer. Um, I'm not quite sure what LaCaz's complaint was because everything he says, she was dispatcher, she was on duty the night of Ron Williams' shooting, she went to his funeral. These are all topics that she discussed during voir dire. And she was able to say, I will decide this case based on the evidence presented at trial and nothing else. She didn't know Ron Williams. Um, she went to the funeral because NOPD expected everybody to go to the funeral, and a lot of people took off work to go to the funeral, whether they knew Ron Williams or the Voos or not. Hmm. I mean, while the funeral procession was going from where they held the service, the memorial, to the funeral home and the burial, cars pulled over and people got out of their cars and watched the funeral procession pass by. People were on overpasses watching the funeral procession just for Ron Williams. So... You know, and she said, I can be fair and impartial. I can decide this case based only on the evidence. And none of the information that she did disclose would have made her, uh, would have been sufficient for a challenge for cause to excuse her from the jury. And the same was Settle. Nothing he disclosed, and even what he didn't disclose, would have made him eligible to be excused on a challenge for cause. Right. Uh, The third juror who didn't testify because of ill health was a woman who didn't disclose that two of her brothers were murdered in the 1980s. Hmm. Um, Again, they, the, the Louisiana Supreme court or well, the trial judge first, did not find that that would have made her eligible to be excused based on a challenge for cause. So, um, the now I, I did mix it up a little bit. Uh, the trial court actually did. Well, okay, no, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's hot in here. I didn't turn yeah. the air conditioner low enough. <laughs> it's like seventy degrees. In freaking February. Um, One of the other fun things about the hearing in 2013 was that the state brought Adam Frank to the Orleans Parish Criminal Courthouse. Because apparently Rogers LaCaz also had two guys who said Frank confessed to killing a police officer in New Orleans. Um, But they brought Adam Frank, and Adam Frank testified, subject to cross-examination, And he denied killing Ron Williams. He denied participating in the robbery with Antoinette Frank. Uh, He said he was in Rayville. He went to Rayville in January of 1995, 
and had not been back to New Orleans until he was brought for this hearing in 2013. And one of the things that the the ADA handling the hearing did, which was absolutely freaking brilliant, is he had six foot five inch Adam Frank stand next to five foot three inch Rogers Lacaz. So if the numbers on a page of six foot five versus five foot three don't mean anything, imagine six foot five next to five foot three. Right. Yeah. And how ridiculous it is to continue to claim that the VUs are gonna mistake six foot five for five foot three. (laughs) Right. So, um, in 20, in 2015, the trial judge did issue his findings. Uh, basically he found that, you know, you could not possibly believe that Adam Frank was the real accomplice for Antoinette Frank because he was six foot five and 230 pounds. And he did not at all come even close to the description given by Kwong and, and Kwok Vu of the accomplice. He was never introduced to anybody as Antoinette Frank's nephew. The Vus knew Adam Frank. So if Adam Frank had been with Antoinette that night, they would have said it was Adam, not her nephew. Um, but he did vacate Lacaz's sentence and conviction based on Settle's failure to disclose the railroad police officer position that he had held at one time as well as I think a misinterpretation of what he was doing for the Department of Motor Vehicles at the time of Lacaz's trial. Because in 2016 the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal reinstated the conviction through some oversight or perhaps due to Lacaz's claims of mental retardation, the Orleans Parish DA did not challenge the vacated sentence. And so the Fourth Circuit reinstated the conviction, but the sentence remained vacated. The Louisiana Supreme Court affirmed the Fourth Circuit's decision. Right. But again, the the sentence that had been vacated was not appealed. And so basically, Lacaz's conviction for three counts of first-degree murder stood, but his death sentence was put into limbo. So um, in 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court denied certiorari. In 2018 and 2019, Lacaz was resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in 2018. Um, I guess the district attorney, because of the claims of mental retardation, 
the fact that Lacoste had tested with a 71 IQ and um, the fact that they would have had to hold a new penalty phase, uh, the DA elected to just work out a resentencing with Lacoste's counsel. There was apparently some kind of dispute, and in 2019, the sentence was three uh, concurrent terms of life, which I believe in Louisiana means he ain't getting out. Right. Um, but that I'll I'll have to um, I'll have to wait for the next phase of litigation to happen if it does happen uh, to find out exactly what that is because the only documentation I have is the criminal court docket, mm-hmm. which is um, basically a minute entry. I don't have any I don't have access to any actual pleadings. Uh, now, Frank, again, as I said earlier, has not filed a federal post-conviction claim, federal habeas corpus. Um, she hasn't completed state post-conviction. Rogers Lacaze filed a federal habeas corpus claim in 2017. That was stayed and administratively closed pending resolution of state claims. Mm-hmm. He may have additional state claims. I don't know. It's hard to tell from the criminal court docket. And the last decision was Louisiana's Supreme Court decision in 2018 and the resentencing in 2019. So we'll have to see if what, what develops in federal court, if anything. Because they still are pursuing actual innocence and claiming that um, Rogers was a victim of the widespread NOPD corruption in the 1990s, um, which is ironic that it was his association with Antoinette Frank that really pushed her over the edge into full-out corruption, shaking down drug dealers. And bringing him to settle his scores with other people. Um, so we'll have to see what happens in the federal court. True. Uh, now, the Kim On restaurant continued to operate. It was very difficult for the family, but they persevered. And uh, it continued to operate in the same location until 2005 and Hurricane Katrina, the family apparently lost their home and the restaurant as well. But they yeah. relocated the restaurant to Harahan. It's now Kim On Noodle House. It's a smaller scale. And um, they now live in Metairie. Chow is married and has two sons. Kwok is also married and has two daughters. Uh, Mrs. Vu, their mom, is still 
you know, she's still dealing with this. It's difficult for her, but she's still dealing with it. Their father's dealing with it. Ron's two sons, Christopher and Patrick, have both grown into wonderful young men. Um, his family, his parents are still around, and, and they, you know, they've been dealing with their loss. His brother's still around, and I saw him on a couple of interviews, and he looks familiar, but I can't place why he looks familiar. I may have crossed paths with him at some time. Right. In the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, hmm. I, I wouldn't have known him then when all this went down in 95, but as I told you before we went on the air, I had friends who knew the Voos who went to Kim on because they lived in the East. And um, my one of my friends, her brother-in-law, had just started working with the Public Integrity Bureau. Right. And he was one of the people who investigated the gun. Hmm. And since it, since we have a little bit of time on on archive, um, the gun, the NOPD when they seized guns, once a case was resolved, they guns could be given to NOPD officers because NOPD officers had to pay out of their own pockets. They weren't issued a weapon by the police department. They had to pay out of their own pockets for their weapons. So they could get a court order from a judge and then a a gun from property could be released to them. There were three orders that after this went down were closely looked at. The first order was for a thirty eight caliber revolver that bore the signature of a judge by the name of Morris Reed. Judge Reed was unequivocal. He said, this is a forgery because my last name is R-E-E-D, and the signature on this says R-E-I-D. And that ain't how I spell my last name. Uh, He was unequivocal. He said it was a forgery. He gave handwriting samples to prove it was a forgery. Another judge, Calvin Johnson, he – I can't remember the weapon that was released – on his order, but he also didn't think the the signature was was valid. Didn't think the signature was legit, and he may have also given handwriting samples. It's kind of iffy on that. Judge Frank mm-hmm. Marullo, he also did not believe the signature was his. There was a flaw with the order that he said I would not have signed it because the identification of the weapon is not included on the order. And we know from Antoinette's letters of recommendation that she was good at putting together official-looking documents. Right, that were being and then uh, that were you know forgeries. Right, and um, so Judge Marullo initially talked to Public Integrity, and then when uh, when the cases for Lacaz and Frank were allotted to him, he told Public Integrity, "I cannot talk to you." 
until these cases are final. He was not the target of the investigation. And this is why the Louisiana Supreme Court found that he you know, didn't have to recuse. There wasn't a bias. He didn't even have to disclose. The, the prosecution never tried to put the weapon in LaCaza's hand or say how the weapon came to be in his hand. So the issue of the weapon coming from NOPD property had no bearing on LaCaza's case. If anything, it would have hurt LaCaza's case because it would have corroborated a statement that he was claiming was false and coerced that he made to police about Antoinette Frank having a friend in the property room who gave her guns. Okay. The target of the investigation was the guy who ran the property room. Because even if he wasn't involved and had no knowledge, bogus orders were being used to get guns out of the property room. That is a problem. Oh, yeah. And we need to nip it in the bud. So um, he did end up losing his job. He was reinstated by the civil service, and the courts affirmed their decision to reinstate him, but he no longer worked in property. He no longer worked in central evidence um, when he was reinstated. But, uh, you know, again, Marullo didn't do anything wrong, even if he had actually signed the order releasing the gun to Antoinette Frank. There was nothing wrong with that. A legitimate order with a legitimate judge's signature on it is nothing, there's nothing wrong. Even if the officer turns out to use that gun for criminal purposes. Because the judge has no way of knowing. And another reason the Louisiana Supreme Court found that Judge Marullo didn't need to recuse himself. He didn't need to disclose this. Uh, It was disclosed and discussed at Frank's trial because it became an issue at Frank's trial. But um, he had no firsthand information about Antoinette Frank getting the gun. He didn't get the order. He didn't talk to Frank. He didn't talk to the property clerk, Tally. So he had nothing firsthand, direct, that could have been used to help Lacaz. And again, Lacaz would have been corroborating a statement he was trying to disavow. By showing that Frank had somebody in the property room that could get her a gun. And did. Um, There's another false claim going around that Ron Williams was indicted, which is false, it's untrue. It did not happen. If Lacoste had any evidence of that, he would have presented it in 2013. Right. Um, if you look on YouTube, there's a video of a, of a woman in Memphis named Tamara um, who has a, a little talk show, and she has Lacoste's mother. She speaks to Lacoste. She speaks to another advocate. Uh who she doesn't really identify in her intro and um, she doesn't really introduce him 
at the beginning of the segment where he speaks to her. But um, a lot of his claims are hearsay, rumor, innuendo. A lot of LaCasa's mother's claims are hearsay, rumor, and innuendo. You know, she claims police told her this. She claims a police officer told her that. LaCasa didn't present any of these police officers in any hearing to testify to whatever Mrs. Cheney thinks exculpates her son. Right. Um, and the the gentleman, I mean, it, it's 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 really horrible that he's going to impugn the character of the man who was murdered because he was wearing an NOPD uniform at the time, and that's all it is. Because again, when people talk about the corruption in NOPD, yes, it was there. Yes, it was happening. But it wasn't every single officer. I mean, it was it was pockets of horrible officers. Granted, but officers were also being fired, and officers were also being you know let go and prosecuted for whatever crimes they committed. It was just that. NOPD because of the pay, because of the residency requirement, we were losing more officers than we could we could handle than we were hiring, and we weren't able to hire the true quality people because the really good people went to the jurisdictions like Jefferson Parish Sheriff who paid more, who said you live wherever you want, we don't care as long as you can get to work on time. We don't care. You know, who paid overtime? You get paid from the minute you get here to, for roll call. You know, it, it, it's just, it's really, it's sad that you have yeah. to impugn this poor man's character because he was wearing a uniform when he was murdered by the person that you're advocating for. And again, we're not talking about a case that's in doubt. Rogers Lacaz was found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by his jury. He has presented his claims of actual innocence and they have been rejected by a trial court, an intermediate appellate court and the Louisiana Supreme court and the U S Supreme court has said, we don't have anything in your case that we want to address. Right. So, um, you know, he's, and again, he fits the description given by Chow and Kwok Vu to a T. One other thing he brings up is Vui Vu. Vui was in the back corner of the cooler. She wasn't looking at anything. She couldn't see anything. She was just trying to live. And one of their arguments is she says Chow and Kwok couldn't see anything. Well, bless her heart, but we can't say what Chow and Kwok could see. Right. 
even if we remembers it in 2013, because she was never called to testify at trial, she didn't speak English. And in her statement through a translator during the investigation, she didn't see anything. She didn't know anything. But um, when she testified in 2013, still through a translator, she said we were all in the corner. That's how she remembers it. We all hid in the corner. Well, you know, Chow and Kwok's statements at the time in 1995, they weren't hiding in the corner. They said they were looking through the windows. They were looking out the window into the kitchen. They were looking out the windows into the convenience store. You know, they were looking to see when the car left. Um, so... You know, you can you can question and try and say they lied, but having one person say what another person could perceive is never going to be successful because it's so, impossible. You know, it's speculation. So um, that is pretty much for right now. That is uh, the Kim on murders. And um, the saddest part about this for me has always been the betrayal. Because the Vuj treated Antoinette Frank like family. And when she became dissatisfied with the number of details she got, she betrayed them. I completely agree. Um, there's also a lot of claims that they that she was partners with Ronnie Williams. They may have been quasi partners in the detail portion, but she also had a detail at Dillard's through another officer, and she probably could have gotten other details. The problem was she sucked. You know, she was probably the one that if the place was being robbed, she would run out the back door. Because she couldn't handle it. You know, she wasn't mentally right to look out for anybody but herself. And, you know, like I said, I, I mean, if she had needed money, the Vuz would have probably given it to her. She didn't have to bring Rogers Lacaz in and murder, you know, Ron, Ha, and Kwong. And try to murder, intend to murder, Fui, Chow, and Kwok. Because when she went back, if other officers hadn't gotten there, just after she did, she would have killed Chow and Fui. Kwok was at his friend's. But she would have killed Chow and Fui. And then Kwok would have been the only one left. So... Um, and again, I, you know, Ed, Eddie Rance, one of the detectives who investigated the case, after he finished interviewing Chow, he went out and he said to somebody, you know, that, that little girl right there, that's our case. Because as hard as it was for her, she was able to give a lot of information she had seen 
almost everything. Nobody saw Ron being shot, uh, but she had seen a lot of what went down, and she was able to to tell detectives about it. And so she and Quok are, like I said, if there can be rock stars in any sense, it's Chow and Quok. And all they want, even now, is just justice for Ron, Ha, and Kwong. I mean, I agree. It's just, it's it's sad. Yeah. And it's funny because both Frank and Lacaz act like they're converted. You know, like they, they found Jesus, even though I didn't know he was missing. But, um, you know, but they won't admit what they did the full the full wrong of what they did right um Lacaz, like I said, he wants to say Adam did it. It's like, okay, people, even somebody who has never seen Star Wars is probably not gonna mistake the Wookiee Chewbacca. Or the droid R two D two, or even <laughs> let's say C three PO and R two D two. Okay, you're not going to say C three PO was R two D two, right? Or that R two D two was three C three PO. Okay, um, you know you're not going to say Chewbacca was R two D two. This is like I said, it's six five. You're not going to mistake 6-5. And they knew Adam. One of the reasons Adam was banned was because he was hitting on Chow. And Adam didn't have gold gold teeth on top either. So You're right. I mean, one's <laughs> is lacking, not just in uh, not just in the whole group. But it is. Yeah. So and uh, I and they've uh, that's another issue that will cause. They want to say the police got this attendant to lie. Okay, but Mary Williams contacted detectives and told them the exact gas station where the card was used because it's on the bill. <laughs> You know, so Chevron lied to Mary Williams, and then Mary Williams told that lie to detectives, and then detectives went to the lie Chevron station and made the attendant lie. You know, there's no connection between Adam, Frank, and Gretna. There's no connection between Adam, Frank, and Michael Lacaz. There's no reason Adam, Frank would be putting gas in Michael Lacaz's car with Ron Williams' credit card at 2 o'clock in the morning in March of 1995. But a lot of of that, that whole thing, they just say the guy lied, and they don't really, you know, they don't really give anybody the details which, when you look at the details, you see 
that guy wasn't lying. That was Rogers Lacoste. Mm-hmm. You know, so. All right, that is that is our that is our case. Okay. I think we're gonna put a we're gonna put a bow on it. I'm gonna stop talking now. <laughs> okay. So. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. Mardi Gras for me, but just Tuesday for everybody else at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 51 State of Louisiana versus Cardell A. Hayes. On April 9, 2016, former Saints defensive end Will Smith and his wife Raquel were shot in a road rage incident after a minor traffic accident. Smith died at the scene and Raquel was seriously injured. The shooter, Cardell Hayes, claimed he acted in self-defense when Smith struck him in the face and then went for a gun. After a trial in December 2016, a jury found Hayes guilty of manslaughter and attempted manslaughter. We'll talk about the evidence, Hayes' self-defense claims, new witnesses who appeared during and after the trial, and Hayes' direct appeal. We'll also talk about the pending case of Ramos versus Louisiana, which is pending at the U.S. Supreme Court and could have an impact on prior non-unanimous felony convictions in the state of Louisiana. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.